What we kind of understood was the way that these narratives, these much bigger structures for understanding the vaccines were being used as a way to try and make people think about the vaccines. We actually moved the publication up because the minute that the Pfizer and Moderna announcements came out, we saw exactly the same narratives playing out and we thought, hang on, we've got a bit of an issue here. And so I think if governments are saying, well, how are we going to ensure that people do have some kind of trust in these vaccines, there needs to be an understanding of those narratives, but we also need to understand the data deficits. And so this is something I'm becoming increasingly passionate about, which is it's not just keep telling everybody that, you know, debunking rumors, it's saying, wow, people are confused about why Pfizer has indemnity. If this vaccine is fine, why can't we sue them if there are problems? I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 10th, 2020. This week on our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation, Evelyn Dweck and I spoke with Claire Wardle, the co-founder and leader of the nonprofit organization First Draft, and a research fellow at Harvard University's Shorenstein Center. First Draft recently released a report on the information environment around the development of vaccines for COVID-19. So we brought Claire on to discuss what she and her team found in terms of online discussion of the vaccine in English, Spanish, and French. What kinds of misinformation should we be ready for as vaccines begin to be administered around the world? Why might fact-checking and labeling by platforms not be effective in countering misinformation? And why is Claire still pessimistic about the progress platforms and researchers have made encountering dis and misinformation over the last four years. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 10th. The vaccine misinformation cometh. Claire, thank you so much for joining us. We've we've wanted to have you on the show for a while, but always sort of felt daunted by just how much there would be to talk about, because you're sort of an expert in in basically everything our, our podcast is about. We thought that a good way to start might be to just... Give our listeners a bit of background about what you see as the focus of your work and the work of First Draft, which is the nonprofit that you co-founded. Well, firstly, thanks for inviting me on. I'm very excited for this conversation. Uh, but yeah, I've, I have had a kind of a strange career in that I trained as an academic, have a PhD in communications, which at the time I thought, mm, was that a Mickey Mouse degree? It turns out communication is at the heart of everything we now do and think about. But about 10 years ago, I became slightly obsessed with how would you verify uh, material that was circulating online and particularly for newsrooms they were getting more user-generated content and the question was if you were the BBC and you were trying to cover a chemical weapons attack in Syria how would you know whether that YouTube video was true but over the last four years of course this question of how do you know what's true online <laughs> has moved very much from a very niche how do you verify images and videos online to more generally the challenges that we now face around mis and disinformation conspiratorial content, uh, weaponized propaganda, you know, well, we know it. Everybody who's listening to this podcast knows it. But yeah, so my strange niche research topic has become much, much bigger over the last 10 years. Great. So we wanted to start with sort of a big stage setting question. In the wake of the 2016 election, which I think it's probably fair to say is when this topic really entered public consciousness in a big way, uh, there was this big fake news moment where conferences and lawmakers and the media were all concerned about the fake news phenomenon. And you co-authored a report in 2017 with Hussein Direction for the Council of Europe that said, whoa, 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 maybe that's not the most helpful term. And instead, you proposed a taxonomy of information disorder based around 
around mis, dis, and malinformation that's been really influential. So could you maybe walk us through the concept of information disorder and why you think fake news doesn't adequately capture all of it and what your proposed alternative taxonomy is? Yes. I mean, I think to your point, you're absolutely right that November 2016 feels like the moment that it hit public consciousness. I think anybody coming from other parts of the world would be like, "Mm, I think there was more awareness, but obviously because of the disproportionate impact of the US and the fact that the platforms are in the US meant that the election in November 2016 was the one that everybody cared about. But of course, anybody following the Philippines earlier in 2016, of course, you can tell from my accent, Brexit in June of 2016 was a moment where people were like, "Mm, there's something going on here. But certainly when there was this, you know, just obsession with the term fake news, I, as somebody who had been thinking about these things for, you know, five or six years at that point, thought, well, a lot of the stuff that I have been working with, a lot of this content isn't fake. It's genuine, but it's used out of context. And a lot of this content, you wouldn't say is news. It's memes, it's GIFs, it's videos, it's imagery. And then on top of that, of course, the term got weaponized pretty quickly from January 2017 by the president, even before his inauguration. And so it just, you know, I just kind of made this point pretty flippantly, but, you know, the terminology isn't useful. And of course, as an academic, I'm disproportionately focused on the need to have clear definitions. And so I came up with these kind of seven types, which was trying to get people to understand that it was kind of on a spectrum and that whilst everybody was really concerned about 100% fabricated rumours, actually the bigger problem we had was, you know, this issue of you know, old imagery recirculating or genuine imagery with the wrong context. Or, for example, people using logos of trusted brands as a shortcut because our brains really love heuristics. So the more I kind of worked on these seven types, uh, the more when Hossein and I started working on this report, we kind of, you know, were sitting with the post-it notes and saying, well, of course, there's a problem of things that are false and misleading. But there's also a problem of this idea of genuine content that is moved from the private to public sphere that itself can be harmful. So we started thinking about this, these kind of two axes of harm and falsity. And so kind of came up with, well, mis and disinformation are both false, but the intent to cause harm is disinformation. The bigger problem is misinformation, but the people who are sharing it don't realize it's false and don't have any intent to cause harm. And then something like malinformation, which, of course, an example would be revenge porn or the leaking of certain types of emails or documents that are deliberately leaked in order to cause harm, not to, you know, public interest is a different matter. And so that we came up with this typology. I mean, I have to say that in as I sit here in December 2020, I look back at some of that work in 2017 and and it's a reminder of how cute the conversations were in 2017, that we were like, well, if we just have the right definitions, we can get through this problem, everybody. And I sit here now pretty depressed about the scale of the problem and how in many ways those terms fail to capture what's really happening in our communication ecosystem. And I think, you know, 2021, we we need to really grapple with some bigger issues that I think we failed to grapple with in the last three years, just hoping, oh, it'll, it'll go away if we work hard enough. And actually the problems got significantly worse. First off, I just want to say I love the description of the 2017 way of thinking that it is cute. I think that that's exactly how I look back on myself and think, oh, you sweet summer child, you had no idea <laughs> what what was coming. Yeah. So what are those big things that need to be done then in your view going forward in 2021 and beyond? So, I mean, I keep banging on about this, but I think the way that researchers and platforms have thought about this problem is that we tend to obsess about individual posts. Should this post be taken down or should it stay up? Should it be labeled or flagged? 
those kind of questions. And by working in that way, whether that's do we fact check this, do we take it down? We know this. We kind of have this whack-a-mole problem, which is the scale is too much. And it also leaves us in the moment as opposed to stepping back and thinking about the ways that narratives are constructed. So we've just published this research about vaccine narratives, but I would argue in the US context, the most obvious narrative was that the election was going to be fraudulent. And I would argue, you know, even in the summer, almost nothing was labeled. There wasn't really any conversation, but Trump almost on a daily basis was tweeting out this idea that it was going to be fraudulent, that the mail-in ballots were going to be rigged. And nothing really happened from a platform perspective, from a news perspective. And instead, it was only really kind of end of September, October, that we had new policies from the platform as we really saw labeling step up. But that narrative was being sown back in October 2016, when Trump at the time as a candidate was sowing the seeds for, well, what if I lose? Obviously won. But that kind of drip, drip, drip problem is something that I just don't think that we've understood how to like wrap our hands around. I remember talking to a Facebook engineer a few years back, and he said exactly this, which is, We've got policy guidelines. I can look at an individual piece of content and say, does it break our policy guidelines? And I can make decisions on that. But the truth is, a lot of the content over the last three to four years has actually shifted as, I'm going to use the term bad actors, I'm doing bunny ears, but you can't see it. But, you know, bad actors understand what those policy guidelines are, and they spread content that goes right up to the guidelines, but doesn't cross it. And what we don't have is longitudinal research that says, well, individually, none of these posts really could cause harm in whatever definition we're using. But the constant cumulative effect of those posts are leading to really damaging narratives and they're having impacts in ways that we're just not measuring. So I think it's that as one thing that we need to struggle with in 2021. And the other thing is just understanding the fragmented, networked, kind of framework of our communication ecosystem. So rather than saying, well, it's a very divided country and there's a people on the left and there's people on the right, I would argue that many people who work in the so-called quality information space still think in a very linear broadcast way. Like if I can just get more people to follow the Twitter account, if I can get more people to listen to my podcast, if I can get the right messages out there, we'll be okay. And actually on the other side, there's a recognition that it's about these interconnected communities that are taking those atoms of content, reframing them, creating mimetic content and resharing back to their own communities in ways that make sense for the arguments they're trying to push. And I think that that failure to understand how different half of the communication ecosystem looks means that this idea that messages are going to save us, we're kind of screwed. And I, I just think in the conversations that I hear people having, and even now around the vaccine problem, you know, I'm on Zoom call after Zoom call with very well-meaning people being like, we just have to get the messages right. And it's, it's like, you know, we're just, we're making the same mistakes again. We're sleepwalking into a problem that we're taking a communication ecosystem from 1990 and assuming that it still works now 30 years later and it looks very, very different. So that's all incredibly useful. Uh, and I think we should definitely come back to a lot of it and sort of talk about, you know, whether we're patting ourselves on the back too quickly for some of the progress that we've made this year and, and sort of how we should think about it. But maybe we can make it a little bit more concrete by talking about the research that you just mentioned on vaccine misinformation that you recently put out. So, I mean, it's probably not too outlandish or extravagant to say that 
perhaps the most important public opinion or information event of our lifetimes could be the reception and uptake of COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, And you co-wrote a report that First Draft just put out about the misinformation narratives that were already developing really early about these. So let's start really broadly. What did you find? So I worked with two incredible researchers, Seb Cubbon and Rory Smith, who basically earlier this year said, we want to really look into this narratives question and we want to do it about vaccines. And I said, well, just go digging and see what you can find. And so they just pulled three months of data for any post that included the term vaccine or vaccination in English, French and Spanish on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And so it won't surprise anybody listening that there was 14 million posts. <laughs> I mean, it was a big data set. And I was like, mm-hmm, OK, let's think about this. And so then we kind of took out things like content from blue ticked accounts, because we found that a lot of the noise was mainstream media talking about it, which, of course, is important. But we were trying to understand some of these organic narratives and the ways that people were talking. And so we took a sample of 1,200 and hand coded them, like went through and we spent a long time as a research team, the whole editorial team, coming up with intercoder reliability. Like, did we have a framework that made sense if, you know, three different researchers looked at the same post, would they put it in the same bucket? And we we basically looked at these overarching narratives. And what we found, and it won't really surprise anybody, is that there was there were differences by language. And so in the English language, which, of course, mostly people in the U.S., U.K., Australia, three communities that have pretty strong feelings about vaccinations, we actually saw the biggest narrative was this idea of liberty and freedom. So in terms of that idea, it was less about safety and efficacy of the vaccine. It was this idea that irrespective of how safe this vaccine is, nobody should have the power to control our bodies. And so it fit very much into growing narratives this year around, you know, excessive quarantine, you know, mandatory mask orders, et cetera, et cetera. So we were seeing a lot of those narratives playing out. Uh, In Spanish language, it was much more about connected with morality and religiosity. So a lot of questions about what ingredients were in the vaccines and was that ethical? Uh, So, you know, concerns that aborted fetus tissue was in these vaccines. So that was playing out a lot. So what we kind of understood was the way that these narratives, these much bigger structures for understanding the vaccines were being used as a way to try and make people think about the vaccines. And I, the reason that we, you know, we put this research out, um, we actually moved the publication up because the minute that the Pfizer and the Moderna announcements came out, we saw exactly the same narratives playing out. And we thought, hang on, we've got a bit of an issue here. And so I think if governments are saying, well, how are we going to ensure that people do have some kind of trust in these vaccines, there needs to be an understanding of those narratives. But we also need to understand the data deficits. And so this is something I'm becoming increasingly passionate about, which is it's not just keep telling everybody that, you know, debunking rumors. It's saying, wow, people are confused about why Pfizer has indemnity. If this vaccine is fine, why can't we sue them if there are problems? Now, if we don't answer those questions, clearly it leads to conspiratorial thinking you know, mRNA, which is a new technology in a couple of these vaccines, people have got questions around, which is leading them to fill those vacuums of, you know, this confusion with false information. So if the mainstream media or other government agencies are not taking seriously the need to create explainer content, then these narratives are going to be even more powerful. So it's a mixture. We We talk about data deficits as the supply and demand And I would say that we've got real challenges, which is there's huge demand for quality information and almost none of those explainer examples. What we have is stories about the race for the vaccine. We have stories today about William Shakespeare, you know, who's who's got the, you know, the second person to get the vaccine in the UK, as opposed to 
tell me what mRNA is. Why should I believe it's safe? It's the first time we've seen this deployed in a vaccine. I've got questions. So there's so much in this case study that we need to learn. I worry that we're learning these lessons too late, but maybe we'll learn them for the next pandemic and the next vaccine rollout. I'd love to talk more about this idea of data deficits, because you also pair it with sort of the reverse of the flip side of data oversupply, which you argue in the report causes its own problems. Can you talk through sort of what these things are, how they relate to one another, and what we should do about them? Yeah, so I think this question of oversupply actually had a name given it to this year, which was when the WHO talked about the infodemic. And they weren't just focusing on false and misleading information. They were saying there's a lot of confusing information out there. And so I think, you know, we live in a world where I often do trainings with journalists and I say, okay, let's, and we talk actually about this question of what's out there when people search. And often you still get 33,000 results, but we don't necessarily look at what those results are. And I think that question of, you can feel like there's a lot of information out there, but if it's, if it's confusing and there are people having, as we would expect, conversations about research and what do we know and we're learning so much as we go but we don't have consensus I mean I think one of the lessons of 2020 is quite rightly you know the WHO and CDC have relied on the way that they've always talked about science which is give us more time we want to reach consensus and that 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 takes time but what's happened is when there wasn't agreement on whether or not we should be wearing masks or whether or not airborne transmission was a problem that confusion was weaponized. And so I think we have this challenge, which is we can have information out there, but if it's not clear, is it giving people what they want? And of course, the thing that I can, well, I will never forget is the morning after the Brexit result, when Google Trends told everybody that the number one search query in the UK that morning was, what's the EU? And I just constantly think about that now, which is data deficits is a mixture of, we might have a lot of information about vaccines, But unless there's clarity, we've got a problem. And of course, the sort of safety of ambiguity, which is what researchers love, and there's constantly another thing we can read, we're constantly building on what we know, that worked in a communication ecosystem from the 1990s when you had trusted gatekeepers. In an era of, you know, to use Kate Starbuck's term, participatory disinformation, when people are out there searching for examples of evidence that supports their worldview, that oversupply of low quality information can itself be a problem. So I think we, we have to see both the oversupply or like the undersupply of quality information, but also too much of what looks like conflicting information. Both of those things can cause problems. And I mean, I remember great media studies research back in the 1980s in the UK, where they basically looked at BBC output and the way that they had covered Israeli-Palestinian issues. And they then went and did audience research and British people said, well, I mean, I see it on the news all the time, but I mean, they talk about the occupied territories, but who's occupying whom? And the researchers went back to the BBC and they obviously said, well, yeah, because every day we come up with the newest angle, but we're failing to go to go back to the basics. And I think about that all the time around this work on vaccines. If I walk down the street and ask most Americans or most Brits, how does a vaccine work? Most people probably couldn't tell me. So no wonder we've got problems with people being concerned about mRNA or what's in the vaccine and what are the side effects and all those things, because people don't fundamentally understand other than I think I'm putting a foreign body into myself. And what is that going to what's going to lead to? So I just think this for 2021, I would like to put all comms professionals in a room, all journalists in a room and say, we've got a problem, people. And if we don't step up what we're doing in the quality information side, we can't keep banging the platforms on the head. Although, of course, I would like to do more of that. But 
we're all part of this problem. And I think we fail to understand the, the mistakes that happened in 2020 that have led to some of the problems we're seeing playing out now. I'm curious how you and the team of researchers picked sort of what content you wanted to include in these different categories and what content you felt was problematic from a, an informational perspective. As you say, you had 14 million posts. There are some memes that are included in the report that I at least found genuinely funny. Like there's a Spanish language meme that reads when they activate the vaccine chip that shows the, a cartoon of Sailor Moon's forehead glowing with a hammer and sickle. Um, so maybe that's just my sense of humor, but I thought that was quite funny. And it wasn't clear to me whether it was actually, you know, what something I would categorize as vaccine misinformation, disinformation, or just someone making a joke about uh, existing misinformation. So how did you determine sort of what crossed the line from joke into potentially concerning? Ah, well, this is a great question, because I think some people have asked us this question, which is, well, not all of this looks like misinformation. And that was a deliberate strategy on our part, which was we were trying to understand the whole information ecosystem. So from the 14 million in the three languages, we took the post with the most engagement, which was partly why we took out links from the BBC or New York Times, because they tend to get huge engagement. So that meme that made you laugh was one of the most engaged Spanish language memes, because we were trying to make this point of look at some of this content that really has got traction, which has, has come from kind of organic accounts. This isn't necessarily coming from a, a kind of an influencer account. Because I think, again, one of my frustrations is nobody takes memes seriously enough. And actually, when you look at this content all day long, you realize that that is, is really one of the most powerful drivers of disinformation. So some of this was included falsehoods. Some of this was quality information with accurate information. But we were in ourselves interested in that. So when we say narratives, the narrative of freedom and liberty, some of that would be false ideas that a vaccine was going to lead to you being microchipped. Another one might just be somebody saying, you know, I've got some concerns about this. I mean, I'm, I'm just worried about maybe is this going to lead to ex like extra surveillance? I don't know. Because again, is that was that a deliberate tactic by somebody to ask the question to prompt confusion or uncertainty? Or was it somebody really just asking the question? And I think that's what we need to understand as we go into 2021 is that some people, like they really have questions that we're not answering sufficiently. And if we, when I say we, people from the quality information space, there are a ton of people from the not so quality information space who are happy to answer those questions, but they answer them in ways that are false. So we deliberately structured the research methodology to not say we're only going to look at misinformation because as we all know on this podcast, we don't have one clearly defined definition of misinformation. You know, the reason we talk about information disorder is because it takes many forms. And for example, one of the challenges I see right now is really well-meaning local radio stations posting to Twitter or Facebook and saying, are you going to take the vaccine question mark as a way to get audience engagement? And every answer is no, because it's full of aluminum. No, because it's GMO. No, because it's DNA. No, because I'm going to get microchips. And all the rumors and the conspiracies are in the comment section. Now, if I'm Facebook, am I going to take down the local radio station asking the question? Probably not. But how do we think about all the different ways that conspiratorial content or false and misleading content can make its way through the ecosystem? We know it's not easy to say yes, unless something is truly false. And that's, of course, this year for things that were truly false, the platforms were like, hooray, we can get the WHO to be the arbiter of truth. And we will just rely on them to decide what goes up and down. And somebody saying, you know, this vaccine is made out of 
like mouse blood. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of something that's not going to be controversial, but something that is factually untrue, the platforms will take down. But there are so many other examples of people just asking questions or saying things like, well, my mum, this is what we're going to see over the next two months. My mum took the vaccine and she had a terrible adverse reaction. Here's a picture of the rash on her arm. Now, if I'm a fact checker, can I go round to that person's house and double check that rash? So we're going to have a lot of those first person injury stories. I don't think we're ready for that because is that false information? Is that misleading? We already know that some of these vaccines do have pretty strong adverse side effects. But instead, we've got the press release that says, oh, it's 95% safe and safe and efficient. Well, that doesn't necessarily chime with this idea that if I get vaccinated, I'm going to have side effects. So the failure for us to really talk about some of these issues and to answer questions that people have, I think is really going to lead to more problems over the next few months. Claire, we're definitely going to blame you if we become ground zero for a big mouse blood vaccine uh, rumor <laughs> that takes off. But anyway, uh, fingers crossed. Yeah, I think we do definitely do need to dig into this question more because it's the elephant in the room when it comes to these problems of health, mis and disinformation is this problem of authoritative sources and by what metric you judge whether something is misinformation or not. And, you know, talking about ideas that seem cute in retrospect, as you said, you know, there was this moment in March-ish uh, where platforms justified taking a more heavy-handed approach to the infodemic, uh, in large part because they said, you know, there's more readily agreed upon sources of authoritative information in a health context than there is in a political context. And of course, that consensus pretty quickly broke down uh, to the extent it ever existed at all. The most famous example being masks and the fact that the World Health Organization, um, which lots of platforms were relying on as the basis of their policies, was well behind public health experts on the recommendation to wear masks. So moving forward, how do we think about this uh, in the context of vaccines and especially where there might be conflicting experts and conflicting sort of judgments about, you know, what is required for a vaccine to be approved before, you know, it, it can be used and things like that? What What's a platform to do in this context? I mean, it's so hard because the platform's were not designed to be the kind of the infrastructure of our communication networks. I mean, you know, I can't imagine any Mark Zuckerberg slide deck from 2004, whatever it was, which was like, we're going to help people determine what's going to keep them alive during a pandemic. Um, but unfortunately, that's where we're at. But the kind of the design of the platforms makes it very difficult to include space for the necessary conflicting information we have because our brains are designed to kind of want certainty and to want gatekeepers to help us navigate through this space. But we can't do that on platforms and in the middle of a public health crisis. You know, I wish, you know, Zainab Sufechi was amazing in March and April, who kind of said, we know from, you know, many countries in Asia that masks really are sensible. And right now, while the science isn't completely in, it would make a lot more sense if we all recognise that and learn from what we what happened elsewhere. And I'd rather later on be wrong than to allow this ambiguity to lead people to not believe that masks are safe. So I think on some of these decisions from a platform perspective, they do need to decide who's going to help them shape these responses but uh, I think, as we've seen in 2020, I'm not necessarily sure that public health organizations are absolutely the right people to understand how to communicate in 2020 because they are using techniques that worked 20 or 30 years ago, but in a networked, fragmentary, participatory information ecosystem, it's much harder. So I'm not giving a good answer to this other than to say 
I think we need to think innovatively about what quality information looks like on these platforms rather than taking ideas that worked in a previous time, if that makes sense. So, of course, there's all this excitement about labels, but, you know, Evelyn and I, you know, like each other's Twitter posts when we talk about this, which is we have no empirical foundation to really understand what those labels are doing to people. I mean, at first off, we've partnered with the Partnership on AI to do some qualitative research with audiences about labels. It won't surprise anybody that people who tend to be more on the left love a good label. People who tend towards the right really hate labels, hate the fact checkers, and it's kind of driving down trust when people see those labels. So are labels the most innovative way we can help people understand different types of information? As ever, this is so difficult because if you're Facebook, you're trying to create a framework that works for many, many different audiences. And in many ways, certain audiences want the ambiguity of more resources to read. They want more choice. They want more context. They want more of that. Others do not want that. And they want certainty and they want people to tell them. And actually some great work by uh, Danigel Young, we went to grad school together, wrote this amazing book earlier this year about the different ways that our brains are wired if we're from the right and the left and that the left loves ambiguity and the right loves certainty. And that it's not she's her argument is not that one is better than the other, but how does that affect, for example, the design choices of platforms? So and she actually talks about comedy, which is the left are more likely to understand and love satire than the right, like Fox News failed to have a satirical program. So I think in those sorts of things, what can the platforms do? We need to rip them up and start again, <laughs> but we can't do that. So instead we like add these incremental shifts, hoping that it's going to be enough. But as we sort of see how bad everything has got in 2020, it's really difficult to think that any of these small things, these labels, these context boxes, that really, like, is that is that what we, uh, that's as good as we can get? And I, I worry that our failure to really think about this in an innovative way is causing the even bigger structural divisions with people moving to parlor or I was reading today in the Atlantic about turfs being frustrated that they didn't have space to air their views. They've created their own social network. I mean, that, that is what I see is that the fragmentary nature is going to become even more fragmented. And I worry that anything that the mainstream platforms are doing now will not be enough to respond to the kind of awful moment that we're in. Once again, I'm, I'm going to just riff on, on what you were saying there, because I think there's a lot there to dig into. So I do love a good label, but <laughs> if that's not going to do it, I think it's also interesting to think about other options that the platforms have. Um, so you write in the report that People sort of have this sense that fact checking is, you know, the way that is going to get us all out of this or removing false content as well. And you you write in the report that it's not enough to monitor and verify these individual pieces of vaccine related content. Fact checking is reactive, insufficient and potentially counterproductive and greater levels of content moderation could fuel anti-vaccination narratives that claim platforms are attempting to cover up and could encourage anti-vax communities to migrate to alternative platforms, as, as you mentioned like parlor. So with all that in mind, um, and keeping in mind what you just said, what is the alternative for platforms here, rather than fact checking, removing individual pieces of content, labeling that kind of thing? So I mean, I think one of my deep frustrations is that the public are completely absent from any of these conversations. So you know, if anybody's at a misinformation convening, there'll be somebody representing the government, somebody representing platforms, somebody representing civil society, one of the fact checkers, blah, blah, blah. And there's never really a conversation with the public to say, well, what kind of content do you want on here? You know, we do talk about media literacy and there are some great media literacy initiatives, but 
I would argue they're not enough. They're not, many of them are not innovative enough, which is how do we really recognize that the communication ecosystem has changed entirely? And this idea of like, well, we need to teach people how to read a headline. It's just not enough. And I think some of the work, I mean, I think one of the words of this year was pre-bunking, but this idea of how do we teach people the tactics and techniques of those who are trying to manipulate you and your communities, we have to find ways to, to do that. And I would argue the platforms need to be part of that, not a reactive voter information center, but what role can they play in really helping people understand those tactics and techniques? So not just we're taking down this account, but we're taking down this account because actually over the last seven months, they have broken our guidelines in three ways by tweeting, you know, 260 times a day, which is impossible to do as a human being. I mean, you know, I'm kind of astonished how many people ask me again and again, like, well, what are the motivations of people who do this? And you're like, okay, if I'm being asked by a journalist in 2020 what the motivations are, probably most people walking down the street don't understand this either. And so I, it's not sexy and everybody says it's going to take too long, but ultimately we didn't put the necessary resources into building resilience in communities in you know 2016 because everybody said oh if Facebook just tweaked their algorithm but I do think the platform should be part of thinking through some of these ideas so how can they provide really interactive innovative experiences that people can have to learn this you know Twitter had some of those pre-bunks at the top where it says it's very unlikely the votes will be counted on the evening of November 3rd like I want to see the research on that. Did that do anything? Did that move a needle? Do more people, did they understand what the election might look like? So I think that there are more things that the platforms need to do that should be around that, which is teaching people that A, you're a publisher when you publish on our sites. And here are some of the things that publishers need to think through. Here's how we need to take responsibility for the information we share as a, you know, without doing it in a really patronizing, paternalistic way. But I, I do think that we fail to say you know, we are all part of this. If none of us shared false or misleading information, we wouldn't have a problem. Most disinformation actors have hardly got an audience at all. They only get oxygen because we all share it. So I think there's so much that I wish we could do. And if we look at the reactions to documentaries like The Great Hack or The Social Dilemma, like really, is that is that over, after four years, that's all we've got that's really touched people outside the nerdy conversations who listen to these podcasts or go to convenings? Like we've got such a massive public education program to do. And I would just like to see participatory responses to this. I mean, I think at one point, Facebook were considering kind of crowdsourced fact-checking initiatives, and that all went very quiet. So I'm not really sure what happened to that. But even the process of this research that we did with PAI, it was a diary study. And we asked people to basically keep a digital record of the kind of content they saw online that they thought was problematic or was being flagged. And we thought people might do one or two. Some people just filled their digital diaries with these examples, and they were really passionate when they described them. Of course, nowadays, it's all on video. So you actually get people saying how angry they were that this a label was added. But they're like, let me go through this example. That label was added in a way that was unfair, and I'll show you why. And you, and you see how much they care about the information that's on these platforms and how angry they are about the way that it's being treated. And fears about censorship, et cetera. Like, how do we bring in a participatory model which asks more people to be part of the process of deciding what happens to different pieces of content? How do we think through that? Uh, I mean, there was some great work done around having a jury system so that if you're on these platforms, how can you sometimes volunteer to be part of a jury that makes some of these decisions? Not just the Facebook oversight board, but what does that look like if we really democratize this process? And so, 
you know, whatever. These are big ideas, but we've got years to keep doing this because there's no quick solution. And so again, I mean, why don't we just try a ton of things, but then test, 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 iterate, test, do all the things that the platforms are meant to be good at, but they, they're not doing the iterations around these kind of initiatives. They're putting labels, then they're writing transparency reports and saying, look, the labels are working, but there's no independent oversight about whether it really is working. Yeah, I think we agreed we're going to get T-shirts, aren't we? That interventions need to be empirically informed uh, because as, as good as labels make us feel uh, and as, as much as they give us something to yell about, uh, we actually have no idea what they're doing or, or what, what the effects of them are. And, you know, I love the idea of a more sort of participatory system as well. And, you know, it's my favourite Gandhi quote, which is, you know, we should be the Twitter that we want to see in the world. Uh, I just think that that would, would fix everything. So speaking of, like, the importance of research and sort of being being more empirically informed. I think we should go back to the point that you rightly made in one of my first questions to you, which is that we focus too much on America and the United States. And that really sort of dominates the conversation in the media and also the actions of the platforms. Uh, and we are guilty of it too on this podcast. But that's by no means because the problems aren't global or, you know, that they don't sort of spread beyond borders, obviously. So First Draft is a global organization. Could you talk a little bit about what you think the US-centric focus misses and how the information dynamics are or are not different in different countries or different languages? Yeah, I mean, I mean, first off, we try to be global, but I mean, we're very aware that we are nowhere near as global as we need to be. We've been very fortunate to work on projects in countries like Brazil and Nigeria. And by working on those kind of projects, you realize all the things that you don't know. I mean, obviously, I'm not American, although I love living in this country. But I mean, America, as we know, does like to think that it's on the forefront of everything. And I'd often say to American audiences, like, if you really want to understand how closed messaging apps are going to impact the information ecosystem, look to India, look to Brazil, look to places like Line and Viber and Telegram in Iran. You really need to understand that because in many ways, the US was behind on understanding how rumors spreading in encrypted spaces could do damage. And of course, in the 2020 election, we had journalists calling up being like, can we talk about WhatsApp and Latinx communities in South Florida? And it's like, all right. But you know, there was a lot of learning that could have been done ahead of that. I mean, I think there's a lot of philanthropy money in the US and the platforms themselves are based here. So it's no surprise that the field of misinformation has been disproportionately impacted by those things. But my deep frustration is that these very, very well-resourced platforms have really not properly resourced having staff from every single country in the world. I mean, WhatsApp for a long time, I don't know if it's still true, they only had one staff member outside Silicon Valley, one member of staff in India. And so what that meant was that staff in the US tended to have this idea of like, well, WhatsApp's just a messaging app, right? Like people just like send text messages to each other. Whereas in many countries, WhatsApp is a social network. It's their new, it's where they get all their news, it's where they get all their information, it's how they connect with everybody. And so if you don't have that local cultural knowledge, you don't know what you're missing and what's needed. And so certainly seeing the impact of misinformation in, we know this, but, you know, Myanmar, unfortunately, now Ethiopia, many, many, many countries, not only is there a lack of recognition of the harm that these technologies can have in places that many, many people have never had a laptop, they're digital first on a mobile phone, uh, they have lower levels of literacy, you know, the way that audio notes are used in many countries, like that's really absent from any, any of the conversations that we have in the US. So that need for having that cultural awareness is important, but also so that people in those countries know who to contact. So, you know, often, you know, in the before times when I used to travel, people would look at me and be like, 
I mean, I can't even find an email address for anybody at Facebook to help me with this problem. And then I'd say, what's your problem? And they'd explain some horrific problem. And I'd realize that somebody with a quarter of that problem based in the US would get an answer immediately. So that's my deep frustration is that the the ways that myths and disinformation have impacted many, many countries in many different ways. And there's been no response from the platforms. And if we're talking about interventions, I've often said to people, you'll only get something to change if you can get somebody to write an op-ed in the Journal or Washington Post or New York Times. That will get somebody to take you seriously. What's that craziness that US journalists have had a disproportionate impact on whatever Craig Silverman has decided to write about in BuzzFeed has had more impact on changes to any of the platforms than anybody else. I mean, that is also a really flawed problem that unfortunately PR pressure in in the US uh, is disproportionately impactful. So yeah, it makes me just really sad. <laughs> and, you know, and, and where when you see the platforms work in the rest of the world, they work in countries where there's more of a regulatory problem. So Brazil, they did pour resources into Brazil because Brazil is threatening all sorts of problematic laws. They pour money into Germany. They are not going to pour money into Ghana. And that's something that, you know, we all know, but is deeply saddening. That gets a little bit to something I wanted to ask you about, which is a piece you wrote recently for Lawfare titled, The Media Has Overcorrected on Foreign Influence. And it's a provocative title, one one that I think is right. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your argument there. And also there's, there's one thing in particular that I wanted to dig in on, which is that you describe in the piece the establishment of, of what you call a disinformation industrial complex. Um, and that that's something that I know I've worried about a lot that we're creating that. So I, I'd love to just have you talk about what you mean by that and how we can perhaps avoid it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not surprising that the focus on Russia came about because the moment that everybody woke up to disinformation was the US 2016 election. And I would often say, you know, back in 2017, you know, the US is disproportionately focused on political disinformation, where globally, the bigger problem is health and science misinformation on closed messaging apps. And people are like, mm, yes, Claire, and then move on to talking about the Russians again. Um, and so it's it's not a surprise, because it was a huge shock, I think, to many Americans that their election and process could be interfered with in, in such a simple way. <laughs> uh, and so it's not a surprise. But I think the, the point of that piece was, I mean, the, I had reporters up to election day calling me up to say, have you seen anything from Russia yet? I mean, it just, it was the number one narrative, which I think came from editors who didn't necessarily have a deep understanding of this space, but understood also implicitly, let's just talk about this. You know, you know that if you write a headline which includes the words Russians, meddling, bots, hacking, elections, you were going to get higher, you know, metrics. So there's also that part of this that we can't ignore. But I think there was also a failure in the US to recognize that domestic actors could be a problem. And I think, as as we all know, towards the end of the election period, there was more of an awareness or an ability to say publicly, the biggest problem in terms of disinformation is coming from the White House. But that was very difficult for many Americans to admit or to say publicly. And so in all of that, it doesn't mean that there shouldn't be an ongoing concern about that as an issue. But the amount of money that has been spent on research groups, startups, businesses, there were so many eyeballs looking for Russian disinformation in the six months leading up to the election. You'd have to have been really, really smart for anything to have snuck through because there were so many people looking. But there was a whole host of other areas that people just weren't paying attention to. They weren't resourced to do the necessary work. There wasn't an appetite to talk about it. And I think, you know, one thing I do hope is that there's much more of a conversation now about the role of 
what would previously have been described as potentially reliable sources, unfortunately now becoming sources of disinformation themselves. So I think a year ago when we talked about domestic actors, it was this idea of like people in their basement across the US, you know, who were causing harm and they were on 8chan and 4chan and creating memes and it was all very patronising. But there was that kind of narrative of that's what a domestic actor looked like. Now I think we see it in a slightly different way. I mean, I think this point about the disinformation industrial complex is, I mean, it's, again, not surprising that this became the sexiest topic. Everybody wanted to throw money at it, be seen to be doing something. And unsurprisingly, you know, many nonprofits who have to be strategic were like, well, normally we focus on X, but if we now focus on misinformation, there's money to be had. You know, let's make sure that we're seen at this convening. Let's make sure that we have our own event. Let's create our own startup. Let's create our own nonprofit. So we've gone from a very, very small field to a very, very large field. And that's not to say there isn't a need for more resources and more people doing it. But I think I I wrote something back in 2017 about when we talk about information disorder, there's about 10 different specific lanes Things like targeted advertising, which is distinct to fact checking, which is distinct to media literacy. It's distinct for, you know, you have all these different lanes. And instead, there's like this this idea of like, we all care about misinformation. And I've said this a few times, but I, I still stand by it, which is because there was this concern about disinformation is I would sometimes be at convenings and they'd be like Chad from the CIA next to Barbara from the public library. Two people who would never normally be in the same room, but this sense of like, well, we're all in it together now because of disinformation. And I've often worried within the disinformation industrial complex, where are the ethical boundaries about who's funding what, what technology is being shared with whom, what data is being shared with whom, who's supporting what? And I I sort of feel over the last four years, a lot of those kind of questions or boundaries that would normally be very clear on this, they have become completely absent. And I do worry that You know, even, for example, the ethics of monitoring closed messaging spaces, you know, what are those guidelines? How do we do them? Who shares that data? There's, And that's because this is a young, young, young field. And in 50 years time, we'll look back and be like, do you remember those heady days? Um, So I'm not being critical. I'm just saying there's a lot that we need to learn from this disinformation industrial complex. And there's a lot of mistakes we've made. And the thing that upsets me the most as we sit here in December 2020 is, If somebody said, well, Claire, you've really been thinking about this for four years. What did we achieve between November 26th and November 2020 in terms of fighting disinformation? I'd say almost nothing. And that's pretty hard to accept and acknowledge. And it's partly because we were running around like headless chickens, but we didn't do all the things that we should have done over four years, although we've talked about it ad nauseum. Well, I look forward to our 10-year uh, nostalgia episode on, on Arbiters <laughs> of Truth when we look back at uh, our naive, youthful optimism. I mean, you, you sound very chirpy, I think, it, like generally that that's the tone that's coming across. But overall, this interview has been pretty pessimistic. I think, you know, you've said maybe we can get it right for the next pandemic. You've said we need to rip the platforms up and start from scratch. You said we've learned nothing in the last four years and that you're deeply sad about the dynamics of this entire debate. First, is that a fair assessment of, of how you're feeling about this whole situation? And and second, if so, what's keeping you going and, and what gives you optimism? Or 
if I can put it another way, like if we take a step back, a lot of the debate in this space, as we were just talking about because of the incentive structures, um, is very reactive and responsive to particular events, whether it's Russian disinformation or the vaccine misinformation. And that stuff is really important. But if we want to look sort of more big picture and think sort of more fundamentally about how we can make bigger progress in the next four years so that we're not just, you know, sort of crying into our teacups in in four years time again. What is giving you optimism or what one big ask would you have to sort of make progress more meaningful? So you're right right that uh, when you described everything I said in this interview, I was like, yep, I said all of those things. But I'm also not surprised by that. I mean, I think what we fail to really understand, and I think people like Maria Ressa in the Philippines, she really understood this from the very beginning and was really screaming and shouting about it, which is this is a fundamental change in our communications infrastructure. And instead, I think we were like, well, we've got a problem of fake news and how are we going to solve it? As opposed to well, look at the ways in which this communication ecosystem has become fragmented and networked. And I think because of that, there was never going to be a quick fix. And I think the naivety was this sense of, well, if we just add labels, if we just you know, resource this nonprofit, we'll be fine. And in many ways, I you know, have also said, well, we don't have a UN agency for disinformation. And don't get me wrong, I do not want a UN agency for disinformation, but we don't have anything at the scale that can actually tackle the problems that the platforms have basically designed. So at the moment, you know, all of us will go to different convenings in Australia, Brazil, the UK, Germany, the same questions are being asked, the same like, but what should we do about it? Like, there's no global response to this. And so I often think about, you know, after World War II, there was a number of new institutions set up because there was a recognition of some really serious problems. And of course, I'm not comparing World War II to this moment, except I think in terms of the shifts, it's at a scale that we have failed to really recognize. And so the reason that I get up every day and still feel like there's something that can be done is because I really think there is. We need to recognize the scale. We need adequate resourcing. But there is no quick fix. It's going to take us at least 30 to 50 years. And four years into, uh, you know, some major UN agencies being designed in the early 50s, people didn't be like, we've got all the answers. So I think to your point, Evelyn, about how do we think about the next four years? We have to recognize we cannot keep being reactive. We cannot keep thinking at a small scale. We have to understand how our communications framework has changed and what does that mean in terms of the way people learn, the way people share information, the way people identify with them, like each other, the way they perform that identity. There's so many elements of this that I think we fail because we keep saying more facts will make us okay. And that, that's not that. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of what's happening here. So the reason that I still get excited when my alarm gets goes off is because there's so much to do and I'm okay with knowing that it's going to take another 50 years. And I think by thinking in that way, we will get further than, but no, 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 we need to solve this by the next election because we're not and we're never going to solve it. We can make it better, but we're never going to solve it. And that's okay. On that note, we're going to have to leave it there. Claire, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was my pleasure. You've been listening to the Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.